be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open with me and your copy of the Word of God to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Romans 8, 1 through 17, that'll be our text for this morning, actually for this morning and uh, next Sunday. I noticed in my records that uh, 17 years ago I preached on verses 1 through 30 of this 39-verse chapter. Now I'm older and wiser, I hope, and uh, not try to tackle that much. But even this week, trying to tackle all 17 verses, as Paul talks about the marvelous ministry and the benefits of the Holy Spirit, I realized in sermon preparation that probably only we get through half of this today, verses 1 through 8. Today is Pentecost Sunday, as you know, a day when we mark and celebrate the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit, subsequent to the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ back to heaven. And Acts chapter 2 offers a comprehensive record of all that took place on that unusual day, the tongues of fire from heaven resting upon a diverse group of people. The mighty acts of God proclaimed in various languages. Peter delivering a message with power. And about 3,000 souls being led into the church that day, saved and redeemed as the Holy Spirit sealed them as new believers. I've preached on Acts 2 a couple of times during my tenure here at Christ Central. And so what I want to do today and next Sunday is go further and talk about uh, not the unique and unrepeatable event of Pentecost, but the residual effect of Pentecost. Pentecost doesn't happen anymore. It was a one-time event. But the impact of Pentecost will happen as long as time lasts until the Lord Jesus comes back to get His church. And that is the ministry of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God inside of every one of us who name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, after Romans 7, where he talked about his great struggle, the struggle of the old nature with his new nature in Christ, he ended that chapter by saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, from this difficult struggle? And then he moved right into chapter 8, and he began to describe this marvelous ministry of God's Holy Spirit and working in our lives. I want you to notice four features of this new life in the Spirit, which I believe Paul outlines beautifully for us in this passage. Number one, our liberation. Our liberation. And we see that in verses 1 through 4. Number two, our concentration. Paul speaks of the mind and what we set our minds on, what we concentrate on in verses 5 through 8. And then thirdly, our obligation in verses 9 through 13, in light of the fact that the Spirit lives inside of us and empowers us to obey, what are our obligations to the Lord through His Spirit? And then finally, our identification in verses 14 through 17 as sons and daughters of God who have been adopted into the family. And so with an outline of the message, uh, join me in prayer and we'll look at the first two points this morning before we enjoy the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we thank you for your Spirit, and we pray for a fresh anointing today on our hearts and minds. 
that we may hear your word, not just audibly, but efficaciously, eternally, in our hearts. Do all this and more, Lord. We'll give you the praise and glory for all that you will do in our lives this hour. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice our liberation. Our liberation. And that is in verses 1 through 4. Paul begins by saying, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is referring to the condemnation brought by the law of God. You know, in Romans 7, Paul speaks of that law. And he said that law was a good thing. It was a, a means of God's grace. But in giving the law, the law also became a difficult thing because it brought to light our sin. And God in his infinite wisdom knew that, that he would give something good and it would expose the problem of humanity. And this is why Paul speaks of the Christian life as the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He's saying that we have a new legal status. Prior to this, we were under the law of God, that is the Ten Commandments, and the Book of the Covenant, summarized in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. But now we serve under grace, under the law of Christ. And so there is no longer any condemnation. You see, the law brought condemnation. The Bible says in Ezekiel, the soul that sins will surely die. And the Bible's clear that we must be perfect, as our God is perfect. But we're not. And when the law came, as Paul talks about in Romans 7, it brought to life all kinds of sin in our lives. And yet, this wonderful law is still a good thing. But it's only good as we understand that our condemnation has been removed. The law was God's greatest revelation of himself to his children in the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant. But Christ is the full revelation of God in the New Testament and under the New Covenant. And so as Christians, we don't wake up in the morning and think first about the law of God. That's not the Christian way. No, we wake up in the morning and we should think first and foremost about the sinless Son of God who died in our place to take away the condemnation of all of our breakage of the law. Now, I want you to notice that Paul says, in Christ. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What does he mean by that? Well, he's pointing not simply just to belief in Christ. He's pointing to the fact that when somebody acknowledges their sin and they embrace Jesus Christ by faith, they are united to Christ. They come in contact with the Lord, and we become a part of the body of Christ. That's why we call the church the body of Christ. It's a supernatural thing. And more and more, we lose our life in light of the fact that we now participate in the life of Christ. And we are in His hands. And so more and more, we take on His personality. We take on His likes, His dislikes. We lose ourselves and become absorbed in Christ Jesus. And so it means that we've acknowledged our failure to keep God's law. And corresponding to this, we've accepted the gift of God's grace and salvation in the gospel. In other words, we've begun a new life. The old life is over, and we are new creatures in Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. 
And therefore, we're living a new life. Now, you'll notice in verse 3, Paul says, and he speaks of the weakness of the law. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. As an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What a marvelous reality. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with the law. When Paul says the law's weakness, he's not pointing inherently to the law. He's pointing to us. The weakness of the law is our sin. The law is a beautiful standard of righteousness, but no one could follow it. Not under the old covenant and certainly not under the new. And so the law became our tutor to lead us to Christ. It became something that condemned us and made life hopeless apart from the salvation that is in the Lord Jesus. But what I want you to see, mark that word in verse 1, condemnation. And then in verse 3, how God condemned sin in the flesh. You see, we have been set free. We have been liberated in order to live a new life in Christ Jesus because Jesus, or I should say God Almighty, condemned sin itself in the flesh through the death of the Lord Jesus and His resurrection. And so the weakness of the law was the fact that the law couldn't save. God gave his law, and then he realized, my people can't obey this on their own. And I'm going to fix the problem for them. I'm going to send my son, and he will take upon himself human flesh, and he will live a perfect life. He will fulfill all the demands of the law. And then he will lay himself down and stretch himself out and die on a Roman cross in order to pay the penalty that was owed by every one of us as a result of our sin. The law was a gift and a means of God's grace. But that unusual weakness, the actual weakness, is our sin dwelling in every one of us. But now we are no longer condemned because God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to remove our condemnation. That's what we celebrate in this supper. Jesus took our condemnation upon Himself in his own body. And so when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're reminded of our union with Christ and the fact that we live as a result of his life, death, and resurrection and his righteousness being applied to us. Now you'll notice in verse 4 about this liberation, Paul winds up this section by showing us that in Christ Jesus, we've not only been set free from the condemnation of the law, we've also been set free to obey the law. Look at verse 4. It's absolutely marvelous. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is a beautiful statement. Uh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. It has actually a dual meaning. It has to do with our position in Christ and also our practice for Christ as we obey Him. We stand completely righteous before Him because of Christ's atonement for us. That's our position. And in that sense, the requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. When you stand in the mirror, you need to see yourself not just as you are, with your hair need to be combed and that sort of thing, or what tie you have on. You need to look in the mirror and realize when God looks at you, He sees His Son. That you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And therefore, the fulfillment of the law is a part of your life because of Christ. You and I could never fulfill the law. We break it in thought, word, and deed. In fact, we're born into this world as sinners because of Adam's fall and Eve's fall. They're our federal representatives, and their sin is transmitted to us. And therefore, we come into the world as fallen, broken sinners. But whenever we come to Christ, the law is fulfilled in us. And that's very important. If you see yourself in Christ, you're not to go through life constantly condemning yourself. There are a lot of believers that do that, you know. Oh, yes, I've accepted Jesus. Oh, yes, I know that Christ died for my sins and that sort of thing. But they do not see themselves as in Christ Jesus. And they do not see that His righteousness is their righteousness. And that the requirements of the law have been fulfilled on behalf of them for their sake. That Christ has done that. It's very important to know that. But also in practice. You see, the Spirit of God comes into our lives and He seals us. And so that we stand before a holy God, righteous, in the righteous robes of Christ. But also, practically, we are now enabled and empowered to fulfill the law. You know what law does? We have a law, we want to find out in our human nature how to break it. As I've often said, whenever you see a sign that says, keep off the grass, what comes to your mind? Putting your foot on the grass. Whenever we have laws, it brings out something in us, like Paul said in Romans chapter 7. But with a change of heart, a change of position, knowing that I stand faultless and sinless, as Jude says, before a holy God, now my heart is set free to want to obey, to more and more hate what God hates and love what God loves. And that takes time. It takes a thorough reading of Scripture, too, growing up. As a pastor, people come to my office all the time, and they'll, they'll read certain things in Scripture. Like 1 John 3, 9, No one who is born of God practices sin. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot go on sinning because he is born of God. And they'll say to themselves and to me, Does that mean I'm out of the kingdom? Does that mean that God has rejected me because I struggle with sin, and sometimes the same sins? And I often say, have you never read? Go back to Romans 7.19. Paul said, for the good that I want to do, I do not do. I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. Now, Paul is not contradicting what John said. It's just that in the tension between these two verses is where the struggle is. We don't want to practice sin. Paul said, I do the very thing that I hate in Romans 7. Before he speaks of the Spirit of God enabling us to see our new position and therefore a new practice to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. But stop condemning yourself if you're doing that. Yes, the Spirit convicts us of sin. Yes, it's a lifelong process. But don't ever lose sight of your position and God's love for you when you struggle and continue to struggle, often with the same sins that are pesky and in your life and just won't go away. God, give us the grace to do that. You know, we have to lose our lives to find new ones, and the Spirit of God does that. And we are liberated whenever we stop insisting on our own way, whenever we stop being stubborn, and we yield. 
and we submit to Christ. And then we don't mind losing our lives. A favorite movie of mine is uh, The Shawshank Redemption. Perhaps you know the story. A young man named Andy Dufresne is an accountant, and he is accused of a murder of his wife, which he didn't commit. And he goes to this awful prison, Shawshank Prison, where the warden is corrupt and where the guards are mean and hateful and abusive. And he spends many years there. And the only way he gains his freedom after several failed attempts is to lose his former life. He creatively sets up a bank account. He sets up a new identity with a social security card. He sets up all the right paperwork. And then he crawls through a sewer in that awful prison for about four football fields. And he comes out on the end with a sack. Wrapped up in that sack is a brand new suit and shoes. And he puts those on, and he assumes a new identity. And he walks into the First National Bank there in that town, and he withdraws $350,000. And then he goes down to the coast of Mexico. A new identity, a new location, a new life. Now that analogy is somewhat similar to what happens with us. We have to lose our lives. We have to stop insisting on our own way and submit and yield to the Lord. And His Spirit works inside of us. And when we realize how much we've been liberated by that Spirit, we're not going to want to live in bondage anymore. But it takes time. It takes time. So that's our liberation. I want you to notice, secondly, our concentration. Look at verses 5 through 8. In this section, Paul turns our attention from our liberation to our concentration. Paul mentions the mind no less than four times in these verses. And the mind is very important and significant in the Christian life, ladies and gentlemen. 